We're going to be reading again from the book of Revelations. We'll be at the start of chapter 3 this morning, so if you have a Bible with you, feel free to pull that out and find your way to Revelation chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, brothers and sisters, my name is Matt. I am the pastor for teaching and vision of our church family. I gotta say, it has been a rich morning already. So I will just jump right into this invitation that we provide each and every single week for you to ask the Holy Spirit, invite Jesus to help you identify where you are at, and then we will continue in our teaching time. So, Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your time. We invite you to do a work as you already are doing. Thank you for this season of refinement, and I pray purification in the life of our church. God, I am sensing your Spirit's presence each and every single week in greater and more intense ways as we continue through this series. And so, God, I thank you. May we not take lightly the gospel that we have been given, the good news that we have. Come to know you, Jesus. God, we desire to see our communities look more like heaven so that every single person has a relationship with you, Jesus. So we invite you to do that work in us, through us, by your spirit. Thank you that this is not dependent upon us. In your name I pray. Amen. 
Well, in 2002, a movie came out called Catch Me If You Can. You're maybe familiar with the movie. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio and also Tom Hanks. And the movie is based upon a real book that was written by someone by the name of Frank Abagnale. And Frank Abagnale uh, is the character that Leonardo DiCaprio plays. And you're maybe familiar with the movie. If you're not, uh, Abagnale was a con artist. At one point, he impersonated a pilot. Another point, he impersonated... Um, was it a pilot? And what was the other one? Doctor, right? He had impersonated each of these individuals, not just like for Halloween, but for real life. And he also was uh, famous for counterfeit checks. I remember this one, see, uh, this one scene in which there was Pan Am checks all over this hotel room that he was staying in, and he was carefully putting them together. And the reason that I raise this is because this really introduces for us the reality that some things are not what they seem. Some things are counterfeit. Some things are fake. And this introduces for us what was going on in the church of Sardis in which Jesus speaks. And so with that, let's go to Revelation 3, verse 1. Begins with, and to the angel of the church in Sardis. Now, as we have been saying, this is not a literal angel. It's more so Jesus speaking to the spirit that exists within the church. The prevailing spirit that exists within the church. Now, Sardis was the ancient capital of Lydia, the kingdom of the wealthy Croesus. We have a photo here of the kingdom of Lydia and then also Croesus. In the 6th century BC, Sardis was one of the most powerful cities in the ancient world and was the greatest of foreign powers encountered by the Greeks during their early colonization of Asia Minor. There's remains of Sardis that can be explored and seen today in what is now Turkey. Sardis itself was 30 miles southeast of Thyatira and 50 miles east of Ephesus, some other cities and the churches that we have already studied. Now, Sardis was taken over and it was conquered multiple times. In 546 BC, it fell to Cyrus under the Persians, then to Alexander the Great and the Greeks in 344 BC, and in BC 214 to Antiochus the Great, and then it finally passed to the Romans in 133 BC. And by the time of the Roman period, it had declined to the point of being a relic of the prestige of the past. And so in many ways, Sardis, though experiencing some prosperity, was slowly dying, and its residents were in many ways trying to live, attempting to live in the significance that it had experienced in the past. Maybe you can relate as you think about your own life, your own experiences with things, this experience, this glory of the past, still trying to live in it in the present, failing to see the reality of what is actually going on and who you've actually become. Now, how does Jesus describe himself to this church in particular? He says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Once again, this description takes us back to chapter 1 of Revelation, specifically verse 20. of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. This is symbolizing the absolute power, the absolute authority that Jesus has over this church. The mention of the seven spirits is in reference to the reality that God, by his spirit, has the power to convict, but also to restore and to revive this church back to life. 
comes next. What is the challenge that this church is facing? Notice Jesus does not begin as he has with other churches with a word of commendation. He begins with this word of challenge and he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Jesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, the power and authority over this church, knows their works. And he says, you have a reputation. Others look at you. You have this reputation of being alive. You have a reputation of being a church of spiritual vitality. You have a name. You have an honorable name for a flourishing church. Everything appears great. And yet... You are dead. Jesus, the heart searcher, the one who is not fooled by appearances, sees not as you and I see, and he pronounces the church dead. Sardis was therefore a church with works, but not much life. As J. Campbell Morgan calls it, it's the church of reputation without reality. The church, in many ways, was likely saturated with the same spirit as the, as the city, and that they were resting on their past reputation without really any present achievement in the gospel. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, writes this on the screen for us. The church was not really what it was reputed to be. They had a name to live, but they were dead. There was a form of godliness, but not the power. A name to live, but not a principle of life. If there was not a total privation of life, yet there was a great deadness in their souls and in their services, a great deadness in the spirits of their ministers, and a great deadness in their ministrations, in their praying, in their preaching, in their converse, and a great deadness in the people in hearing, in prayer, and in conversation. What little life was yet left among them was in a manner expiring and ready to die. In summary, the church of Sardis was a counterfeit and dying. Though it appeared true and genuine, it was in fact dead and in decay. Now we ask ourselves the question, well, how can this happen? I think firstly what can happen is that you and I deceive ourselves. Now transitioning to ourselves and our own churches. You and I can deceive ourselves. We believe that we are better than we actually are. And then we move along to justify ourselves. I think of Jesus speaking to the scribes and to the Pharisees in Matthew 23 verse 27. He says, Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Sometimes what we can happen is we can live in a day gone by of our glory or spiritual highs of the past when in the present there is deadness. And what can happen is it can happen slowly over time, one little compromise or lie after another, referring back to how we studied Thyatira last week. This can be a death by a thousand little cuts. So we deceive ourselves, but then sometimes we deceive others. 
We want to appear better than we actually are. And so what we do is we create a facade, but inwardly are dead. I created this graph for us. Along the bottom line, you can see the real you. Now, you could put these lines. I've connected these lines. They don't have to be connected. But what I'm illustrating is the fact that there's the real you, but then there's the perceived you. There's the you that everybody else sees. And in between this exists a gap. And what happens is that you and I live under the gap. And what some have suggested is that the reason that we see some significant falls from grace of Christian leaders or others is because this gap becomes too heavy to carry, and they fall. And it's almost as if when they fall, they're found out, and they're almost grateful because of this weight of this gap that they've been living under. The real you versus the perceived yous, you. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he continues with then direction. How are they to move, move forward? Verse 2, he says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Four directives. One, wake up. Or better translated, be watchful. Jesus here is identifying that one of the reasons for their deadness and deception was that they had let down their watch. And when you and I are off our watch, we lose ground. This reminds us of 1 Peter 5 verse 8, which Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, watchfulness in the context of Sardis was quite meaningful because in the past, it had been captured twice because of lack of their watchfulness. In 549 BC, Cyrus captured the Acropolis by deploying a climber to work his way up a crevice on one of the sides of the walls of the mountain fortress. And then it happened again in 216 BC in the exact same way by Antiochus the Great. As one author put it, To consider oneself safe and fail to remain alert is to court disaster. Jesus then says, secondly, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Though dead, there was a remnant of something that had the possibility of restoration to life. Now, this could be people, this could be their practices, but they're told, strengthen what remains. There is something. And so in many ways, they're likely lacking the motivation and the spiritual orientation to actually get to where they need to go. Thirdly, Jesus says, remember what you heard and received. Many people believe that what this is in reference to is the gospel and the affections of Christ that were stirred in the very beginning and point of faith. If you're a person that loves Jesus, you've committed your life to follow Jesus, you know that it's difficult to walk with Jesus over the long haul. And in certain seasons, when it is more difficult, what Jesus is telling you is remember the affections that were stirred at first, the mercy of God when you first received it. Richard Lovelace, in his incredible book, Dynamics of the Spiritual Life, writes about renewal and revival in a church and revivals historically. And he says that there are two things that are existing in every single revival. And one of those things is a renewed understanding of the gospel of grace. 
the good news of the gospel. We come to realize once again how sinful we are and how Christ has done everything necessary for us to be forgiven and to spend eternity with him forever. Oftentimes we slip into this understanding of I need to work for my salvation. Some theologians put it in the category of we are trying to work at our sanctification in order to be justified, whereas the gospel tells us you are justified in and through Christ, and therefore from there do we work out our obedience in fear and trembling. And the second reality of these revivals or renewals is prayer. There's a recommitment in a local believer's life and in a local church's life to the significance and priority of prayer. Dependence upon God for everything. And so what does Jesus say? Remember what you heard. Remember the good news of the gospel. May it motivate you. May it change you. And may you turn to me in prayer. And fourthly, what does he say? Keep it and repent. Keep the gospel. Hold fast to the gospel. And from that, repent. Recognize how deeply loved and accepted you are in Christ. And then change your mind from that place. As Keller helps us so art- articulate so helpful to us what the gospel is and how religion works. He says, how religion works. If I obey, then God will love and accept me. The gospel, however, tells us, I am loved and accepted, therefore I wish to obey. Yet so many of us are oriented in our spiritual lives in the opposite way. Jesus then following this, what you need to do to begin the steps of moving forward, empowered by me and the Spirit, he issues this warning of the consequence. He says, if you will not wake up, Verse 3b, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, certainly he is speaking of a historical judgment, arrival, not his second coming. So there is consequence. You must act. He will come like a thief. And so what this does is should raise the severity of the appearance of life, but actual death in our lives and in our church. And therefore, then, what is actually at stake? Now, some examples of other consequences of what these types of environments or what these types of churches, what can happen is the impact of hypocrisy on those who then leave the church and will deconstruct the faith. You maybe know those who are walking the journey of deconstruction, and some of them are motivated, in essence, because of the hypocrisy of Christians that they knew or know of. And so we have to be people who come back once again to the one that has saved us and recognize our sin and yet also the one who has given us life. Or how about just real dying churches and their unwillingness to recognize their death before it happens, unwilling to be revitalized, in many ways living in the glory days of the past. I think of my, my friend Albert Chung, who pastors a church in Toronto called Trinity Grace Church. And Trinity Grace is the merging of Trinity Grace, the church that he was planted, in another church called Leeside Bible Chapel. And I want you to see an example of these elders' repentance. Look what they wrote to Albert. As elders of Leeside Bible Chapel, we confess that we have failed at establishing a gospel witness in our community. We desire for a gospel witness and missional church to be reestablished in our local community and beyond. And we would like to consider whether we can work together towards that goal. 
This was the beginning stages of the forming of what is now Trinity Grace Church, the merging of these two churches. Praise God. Other examples are, can be a progressive church's unwillingness to call people to repentance and faith and to instead adapt, compromise, or change Scripture for relevance, which is in fact deadness. Or how about the risk of the overall fidelity of the gospel? The risks of being outwardly having this reputation but actually dead. Yet like Thyatira, Jesus' word now shifts to encouragement and promise. He says, Yet you have still a few who remain in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So there are some who remain faithful in Sardis. There are those who are justified, adopted, and comforted, and they've held fast, they've kept the word, they've heard, and they're walking with Christ. Praise God. Jesus then concludes with these promises for these individuals and to those who will repent and turn to him. He says, The one who conquers will be clothed in thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. First, he says, you'll be clothed in white garments. White garments was rich in meaning. In this city, noted for its luxury clothing trade, What Jesus is saying is that the faithful few who are vigilant shall be arrayed to share in the return of Christ. Secondly, he says their names will not be blotted out of the book of life. While there's some debate about what book of life is referring to, most agree that the book of life is the book that contains the names of everyone who is born. What this then means is that those who reject Christ have their names blotted out of the book, for they are in fact dead. So remain faithful. And then thirdly, Christ will acknowledge them before God and before his angels. Christ will produce this book of life, confess the names of the faithful who stand there before God and all the angels. He will do this as their judge, and the books shall be opened. Takes me to Matthew 10, verse 32. For everyone who acknowledges me, this is Jesus, before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus concludes, as he has to the other churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so as I challenged us in previous weeks, do you hear? Are you listening? Are you alive or are you dead? Where does the Spirit of God need to begin in rekindling and restoring what may still be present? Some practices for us to consider. How do we avoid going down this pathway of having the reputation of spiritual vitality, but in fact being dead? How do we do that personally, and then how do we do that as a church? A practice to consider is confession. Confession. Henry Cloud writes this, to confess from the Bible's perspective basically means to agree with reality. It means to acknowledge or agree fully with something. Sometimes we're told to confess Jesus as Lord, but other times we are told to confess our sins, faults, and brokenness, the negative things of life. Why is this so important? 
simply stated. It gets us in touch with the reality of who we are, and it connects that reality with God, others, and to the healing process. And so through confession, we connect the part of us that needs to bring healing back to God, and we get restored to the truth, and then what we also do is we build intimacy. Cloud continues, there is no spiritual life without confession. The spiritual life begins with confession, and it is sustained by it. It is the process that opens the door of our hearts and souls to God, others, and even to ourselves. Begin to agree with reality. It can truly save your soul and life. Think of the graph that I put on the screen for us, the real you versus the perceived you. What is reality? The real you. Inviting others into who we really are. Begin with reality so we can begin the healing process. There is a very well-known parable. Some would say it's one of the well, most well-known parables that Jesus ever tells, and it's the parable of the prodigal or the lost son. In context, the parable was actually a challenge to the scribes and Pharisees, yet also illustrating the lost son. It's a challenge to the Pharisees and scribes who are the elder son out in the field. And yet today, I want to look at this lost son and I want to revisit the words of Jesus from that parable to help illustrate for us the reality of us coming back to the Father. Luke 15, verse 20 to 24, just prior to this in these verses, the son agrees with reality. He realizes how far he has fallen. And we read in verse 20, I'd invite you to maybe just even close your eyes, picture a scene Imagine the father's longing for his son and the son coming to his father. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and let us celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Brothers and sisters, may we be these sons and daughters who return if there is a deadness. May we come back to the Father who is gracious and runs to us and celebrates upon every act of repentance and confession. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you once again for your words to this church. I thank you for the challenge that they are to us. Do what only you can do today, Jesus, in our hearts. 
I pray that if there is anyone here, Lord Jesus, that has never heard this great good news of the gospel, that regardless of what we have done, regardless how broken and sinful we are, you have made a way through Christ for us to be in relationship with the maker of the universe, to be known and fully known. For those of us that are dead, would you bring back to life what remains? And would be people who recognize and agree with reality. So Lord Jesus, we can be watchful. In your son's name we pray. Amen.